Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been saying often in this series of programs on the Kingdom that Jesus came bearing a message. There's a central idea which lies at the root of everything Jesus taught. That central slogan of Jesus, his watchword, the idea around which all of his teaching revolves, is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, according to the prophets of Israel, which Jesus accepted as a divinely inspired record of what God was going to do on the earth by way of his salvation program, that kingdom of God, according to those prophets and Jesus himself, is to be the world empire which will come to power with Jesus when he returns at his second coming to set up his kingdom on this planet renewed. The kingdom of God was the national hope of Israel. An invitation to the kingdom was an invitation to rule with Messiah in the kingdom of God. That invitation through the gospel of the kingdom, the Christian gospel, is available to Jew and Gentile alike. One body in Christ. There is in fact one God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Jesus, and as Paul said in Romans 3, God is the same God for both Jew and Gentile alike. Jesus recited the creed of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. Jesus affirmed the Old Testament creed when he rehearsed that creed in Mark 12, verses 28 and following. He simply confirmed that the Old Testament had revealed the one and only true God, the Father of Jesus Christ. Jesus came announcing the kingdom of his Father. It was God's gospel, and he invites human beings of all races and nations and tribes to prepare for entrance into that kingdom and to be immortalized as a co-ruler with Christ in that kingdom which will be established on the earth at the second coming of Jesus. That's the story underlying the biblical drama, and everything pushes forward to that great denouement of God's plan when the Messiah will be seen in the skies, arriving, returning to this planet to take up his rightful position as heir to the throne of David in Jerusalem. But before that time, as Paul warned in Second Thessalonians 2, there will appear on the earth a final anti-Christian tyrant who will persecute the saints and try to exterminate truth from the earth. This person will be the direct agent of Satan the devil. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul gave us a summary of those awful times coming, and we are warned in these verses to be prepared. There's no pre-tribulation rapture in the Bible. The rapture resurrection of the saints will occur after the tribulation. In Matthew 24, verse 29 onwards, Jesus spoke of gathering the saints after the tribulation. That's to say the saints, the faithful living at the time of Christ, and those who have died prior to the second coming, those will be resurrected, the living will be caught up to meet the Lord, and that wonderful event will occur after the tribulation, post-tribulation. Jesus' words are these, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and then the angels of God will be sent out to gather the elect. That gathering of the elect is expressly said to be after the tribulation. Paul has exactly the same view in 2 Thessalonians 2. He warned in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3, that two events must precede 
the second coming of Christ and our gathering together to him. He mentions that gathering in verse 1, and he calls it the day of the Lord in verse 2. The two events which must precede the coming of Christ are the emergence of a terrible apostasy, a falling away from the truth, that is, and the arrival on the scene of the ultimate anti-Christian figure, the one who works with the energy of Satan. He's described there in verse 8 of Second Thessalonians 2 in these words. And then Paul says that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That word coming is the technical term for the arrival in the future of Jesus to take up power in his kingdom. In verse 9 of Second Thessalonians 2, Paul gives further details about the activity of the final anti-Christian satanic agent. He's the one who's coming. And note there that the Antichrist himself has a counterfeit pseudo-coming a coming which is designed to mimic the very coming of Jesus himself. The Antichrist, Paul says, is the one whose coming is in accordance with the energy and activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. Those words there in the Greek are the very words used of Jesus' own miracles. They're the words used of apostolic miracles. Well, the devil will be able to ape those miracles by laying on a show of miracle, sign, and wonder, which in fact will be generated by his own fake energy. They will be genuine miracles in the sense that they really will be miraculous happenings, but they will be produced by Satan and not by God, and they will be designed to deceive people, to attract the unwary, the unschooled, and the unprepared towards the Antichrist. In Revelation 13, we read of a second figure, the false prophet, who, as somebody has said, is a sort of PR representative for the Antichrist and attracts attention and gains a following for the Antichrist. The energy of Satan will motivate this evil figure and it will be with all deception of wickedness for those who are perishing. Paul says in Second Thessalonians 2 verse 10, and they're perishing, he goes on to point out, because the love of the truth they did not receive in order to be saved. Jesus had already spoken in similar language in the parable of the sower of the need for intelligent reception of the gospel about the kingdom in order to be saved. Matthew 13:19, compared with Luke 8 and verse 12. And here in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10, Paul speaks of receiving the love of the truth. He's referring there to the gospel of the kingdom message which he and Jesus preached. He and all the apostles, in fact, preached to receive that love of the truth, to accept God's plan open-heartedly with childlike submission, to rejoice in the truth, to develop a passion for truth as distinct from error. That's the way to be saved, according to Second Thessalonians 2, verse 10. You see, it's impossible to accept Jesus without accepting his teachings. You can't receive the Lord unless you receive his agenda, and his agenda is summed up in the famous phrase, gospel of the kingdom of God. In addition, of course, we must recognize that Jesus died to atone for our sins and that he's now the risen Lord at the right hand of his Father, extending his influence through his Spirit. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus, as it's called in Acts 16. The Spirit of a person is the power, the influence, the disposition, the mind of that person extended to bless others. The Spirit of God is parallel to the heart of God. It's his mind, his character, 
his nature, and he communicates that to us through the words of Scripture. The Bible, in fact, is God in conversation with us. It's God's love letter to us. Would we not expect Christians everywhere to be pouring over that word so that we might develop the character and the mind and the intelligence of God himself, that we might be party to his great kingdom scheme, that we might know the mysteries and the secrets of the kingdom of God which are revealed to us only through his Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul spoke of the Spirit of God being the inner mind and the inner heart and life of God himself, now extended graciously to his creation, and that Spirit is coming through Jesus Christ. It's poured out on the church. That pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost reminds us of the words of wisdom in Proverbs 1 and verse 23. I will bubble out my Spirit on you. That text says, Proverbs 1.23. Wisdom is speaking there. A personification of wisdom speaks and says, I will bubble out my Spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. One translation renders that, I will make my mind known to you. Another says, I will pour out my thoughts on you. I will open my heart to you. That's the activity of the Spirit of God. It's to share the mind of God with us, that we seek the Spirit of God. And that Spirit is found in the words of Scripture. All Scripture is inspirited, we might say, by the Spirit of God, inspired by the Spirit of God. Scripture as a divine revelation represents the very mind and character of God, his plan and purpose for the world. David said that the Spirit of the Lord had spoken by him, and God's Word was in his mouth. You see there again the close connection between the Spirit and the words. The Spirit is the mind behind the words which we express. In the book of Isaiah, God said, My Spirit will not depart from you, and my words will not be removed from your mouth. We're told not to quench the Spirit, that effectively means don't try to silence or muzzle God. Allow Him to speak to us through the Spirit in His words. Jesus was one who had the Spirit without measure. That's to say, He spoke the words of God, according to John's Gospel. Did not Jesus say that the words that I speak to you are Spirit and are life? They are carrying the very energy in the mind of God. John 6, verse 63. In the book of Job, somebody asks, what spirit are you expressing? Every word we hear spoken expresses a certain spirit, either the spirit of God or the spirit of error, the spirit of the truth, as John describes the Holy Spirit, or the lying spirit of the devil. When filled with the mind and the spirit of God, a man will inevitably speak the words of God. A person who is attuned to God will speak the mind of God. His words will be on their tongue. So we have to be on the wavelength of God by attuning our spirits to His Spirit. To achieve this state involves a long process of reading and meditation and study in order to unlearn what sometimes church speak has taught us falsely and to learn what the Spirit of God has to say in those spirit-carrying words to be found in Scripture. Well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul gives us a strong warning that we should be prepared by developing the power of discernment now. It's only those who love the truth who will avoid perishing and being ruined by the lies of the devil. And those who are careless with the truth will suffer a terrible penalty. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 11 reads like this, And for this reason, that's to say because they did not love the truth in order to be saved, for this reason 
God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. You see there the contrast between the spirit of the truth, the Holy Spirit, and the spirit of error. The spirit of the truth is a truthful influence brought to bear upon our minds as we interact with the words of Scripture, the words of the apostles and the prophets and of Jesus supremely. But the spirit of the devil is permitted by God as a deluding influence which will actually cause people to believe what is false. And in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. You see there that the opposite of wickedness is to believe the truth. How important then is truth? It would seem to be vitally important that we discern between truth and error. We cannot afford to be fooled by the clever tactics of the devil. The only remedy in this situation is to immerse ourselves, to bathe our minds in the truth to be found in the inspired words of God in Scripture. Paul then gives thanks in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, For you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification, that's by being made holy through the Spirit, that's the divinely inspired truth influence as opposed to the deluding influence of the lies of the devil, is through the Spirit, the mind of God projected His operational presence working among us. Through that Spirit, we gain a faith in the truth. And it was for this that He called you through our gospel, so that you could gain the glory or the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ in the future. Paul then ends by telling them to stand firm and to hold to the traditions which they were taught by the apostles. We invite you to request from us a tape of the program you've been listening to, our book on the kingdom of God, and join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.